Welcome to a special episode of Critics Not Cynics, the podcast that tries to prove that you can be a critic without being a cynic. And this episode is going to be a little bit different from the normal uh, podcast. I'm going to be doing a uh, commentary track for Friday the 13th, the original film. Uh, The movie uh, holds a very special place in my heart. Um, It was the first horror film I was actually exposed to, like legit horror film I was exposed to that I watched in full um, by my sister when I was was younger. Uh, She will deny the story, but she had wanted me to watch it with her and I asked her if it was a scary movie, and she said, no, it's a mystery movie. And I was like, oh, okay. And we watched it, and she proceeded to fall asleep, and I watched the whole movie straight through. Uh, She does not ever remember this, supposedly, but yes, this did happen. Um, So we're going to run through that. Uh, Now, just to kind of give some forewarning beforehand, uh, this episode's going to be split into two episodes due to just recording restrictions. I can only record about an hour and a half um, and before I have to break it up. And so this will probably be about 40 to 50 minutes long, depending, uh, where I decide to kind of cut it for a break and then start recording the second half to this. So there are two episodes for this, uh, podcast and kind of what I'm going to do is it's definitely going to be spoiler heavy. Uh, of course the movie's been out for 30 uh, odd years now. Um, and it's just going to be talking kind of about, the actors and and the plot and the story and kind of as the events unfold uh there shouldn't be any audio playback that you can hear of the movie Uh, i'm i'm gonna try to have it relatively low so i don't get hit with any type of copyright infringement or anything like that um but if you want you'll be able to kind of have this track and uh you know play it along if you want to watch the movie on your own uh i'm going to give kind of a count off to when i press play for the movie and um so that you can kind of sync up the podcast to you you watching the movie if you if you would so choose to um so i uh have a kind of a funny story to to preface this episode and it's um dealing with the fact that while i was at work today because today is technically thursday so i'm recording this today before friday the 13th but you know i wanted to make sure that this got out uh you know on friday the 13th and so i knew i'd have to be watching this uh while recording with no volume and i needed a quick refresher so at work today i was listening to the movie while working uh and i was listening on my wireless earbuds and now my wireless earbuds uh, have about a battery life of two hours. And I was hitting my like two hour mark and I wanted to hit it before or, you know, turn my wireless headphones off before I got the battery low uh, warning. And so, you know, I paused, the, paused it on, on my phone and uh, I, you know, got out of the app and I go and I turn off my headphones and all of a sudden the movie starts like the audio starts playing and it's during a, a moment when a character is getting killed. So it's the scream and, you know, the creepy music and everything. And so everyone in my office could pretty much hear that. And so, of course, I had to embarrassingly apologize and say, oh, sorry, that's, you know, I got to get my my headphones, you know, screwed up or something like that. And, 
oh boy, was I read for a while. So, you know, that's always great, you know, getting weird stares from your coworkers as they hear someone getting brutally murdered. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a fun experience today, but, uh, it was all for preparation for this. So, uh, hopefully I do a good job with this. Uh, it's going to be the first time that I'm done some type of commentary track along with a movie as I'm watching it. It's going to be kind of interspersed with some tidbits and some factoids, uh, mainly stuff that I've gotten just from basic research of the movie that I've done on my own. Uh, probably some stuff that I remember from the Crystal Lake Memories documentary, which I would highly recommend. It's a six-hour documentary, um, and it's fantastic because it covers the production and, and all the stuff of the all the movies going all the way up to, I think, even the remake. Uh, and it's just fantastic. Like, it does not feel like you're sitting there watching six hours, and I need to revisit it because it's, it's such a fantastic documentary. That and the uh, Never Sleep Again, I think they're done by the same people. Uh, the Never Sleep Again one uh, is about the, the Nightmare on Elm Street uh, series. So um, we're going to go ahead and get ready to go into this, and I'll let you know when, uh, when we hit the break and... I get some of this kind of uh, homework stuff out of the way. If you um, can go ahead and head on over to iTunes and and uh, rate and review the show, you know, just take a few seconds if you can, please. It doesn't take really long. You can, you know, you don't even have to type anything long. It just can be short and brief. Just, you know, let let people know how you like the how you like the show and. Uh, and if you recommend it for other people, more ratings and reviews to get on there, it, the more viewable it gets for people to kind of find on their own. And I also wanted to announce that anyone, um, of course, I'm going to have to do something separate on SoundCloud anyways. The podcast will no longer uh, be on SoundCloud. I have too many extra benefits with Podbean, and I'm getting more exposure through Podbean and, and iTunes now that uh, SoundCloud is kind of obsolete. It wasn't really serving a purpose and I get more added benefits from with having an account with Podbean. So uh, sorry to anyone that was listening on SoundCloud. Uh, it's just this is much easier and more convenient and more beneficial to the podcast. So that's just how it is moving forward. Um, okay, so I think that's all the, the homework stuff out of the way. So let's go ahead and get started with this. Uh, we're going to start the movie in three, two, one. And, you know, one thing that always kind of amazes me about this is, you know, this is the theatrical cut of the movie. And I know that there is a uh, uncut version of it, but there, the time difference isn't really there. So I don't know what the the difference is, because the, the time, runtime of it's still, I think, like an hour and a half. So I don't know if there's more blood or more gore or not, but, you know, here we go. We got the opening on the camp and you got the, the camp counselors, uh, singing, you know, the old camp songs. And, you know, this is, I don't know, this is one of my like favorite type of horror films. Like I, I, I really love kind of the, the camp aspect and, um, you know, like movies like, like the burning and this, and even the really like really low budget, like uh, bloody murder movies, both, both those films, like I really love them. I love the the camp aspect, and uh, you know you have this killer on there. It's either going after the the kids or the camp counselors, 
And, you know, and this opens up really creepy because you have all the counselors together having fun. And then you get this POV of you don't know who at this moment. And they're walking through the the camp lodges. So it's, you know, you know this going into this, that this is a horror film. Uh, if you've not been exposed to it before, like, you don't know what's is something going to happen with these kids also um you know this is in the 1950s and you don't know why we're exactly starting out in the 50s um you know what what is this that's going on and of course you know throughout the the course of the film uh you kind of get those those clues fed to you and and that's one of the interesting things the screenwriter victor miller uh although you know he's in kind of a, a battle with uh sean s cunningham the director of this film kind of like for the rights of of friday the 13th and uh the character of jason um because they want to do another movie but kind of he's stepping in and, and causing some issues but victor miller like just approached this as a mystery and i think that's one of its strengths like it, it is definitely almost a whodunit and uh i mean you have your your twist near the end and everything and uh it's really amazing and of course here you know we got the two, two lovebird camp counselors leaving the rest of the group to, you know, go have some fun and, uh, you know, do what young teenagers do. And uh, also one of the other great things about this is, you know, Friday the 13th this year, it's a full moon and on a Friday and it plays perfectly with, with this movie. So I, I you know, I can't really uh, time this up better, but... Uh, and you know, here we go. We're going with the POV again. The this person is in this is like some type of barn or or, or shed area, kind of, and uh, you get the POV of the of this person who's kind of watching these two camp counselors. I mean, they're not really shirking their duties because all the kids are off in their in their beds right now, sleeping, and it was only just all the adults kind of doing the campfire thing. Um, but now they've gone off on their own and they're, you know, being a little intimate. Uh, it's not probably part of their job responsibilities, obviously. It's not like they're getting paid to uh, just go and, and have fun with each other. But, um, you know, this is when you get the first kind of inkling that something's not right here as the camera slowly pans uh, to go up the steps. So it's... And, and what's one of the... Great things is it's so slow, you know. And then you've got Harry Manfredini's score that kind of goes along with this really well. And I, it just uh, you know, his his score with this film is fantastic. Like I don't know if it would be nearly uh, as effective as a of a horror film without his score. And uh, of course now, uh oh, you know we're caught. Uh, obviously this is from based off the reactions, you know, they're like, well, this is, yeah, you know, we're not doing anything. We're just messing around. And then you get a knife into the, into the stomach. Um, so this was someone that they know, but you know, we have no clue as an audience who this killer is. And I think that's one of the things that's ter more terrifying about it because it's someone that they know and, someone that they're worried about reprisal who then all of a sudden takes action. And then, you know, we get this kind of slowed down as, as the girl is trying to, you know, 
get away from the killer and then it just freezes and close up and we go to white and we can't assume we can assume that nothing good has occurred from this and then of course you get the the classic friday the 13th breaking the glass you know kind of sticking with that that superstition theme and one thing uh as as we get the opening credits here rolling that uh as i've never really thought about before but now kind of thinking about this in a, a, a retrospective this movie is really grounded in reality like it's it's grounded in uh you know real world but when you really get to some of the characters later on and and some of the things that are said in dialogue uh it actually does have a little air air of supernatural that the series kind of adapts later on especially in uh part six um but w one of the great things also here is the uh, associate producer steven minor he ends up going on and directing the sequel to this and uh, you know, Sean S. Cunningham didn't really have any like big films to his name as a director. Now he did, I believe, produce uh, with Wes Craven on uh, Last House on the Left. But uh, now here we go. We're Friday, June thirteenth, the present. And another thing that's uh, really kind of interesting about this is it's it's got some really strong parallels to psycho and we'll we'll talk about that as the movie progresses but here we're getting kind of the ideal little crystal lake town um or town of crystal lake rather and we have annie and um you know she's just we don't know anything about her she's just walking through town she's got her little traveling pack on and everything and you know i love this scene with her and the dog it's it kind of introduces you to the character of Annie and you know she's kind of this happy-go-lucky girl she's coming in for her summer job and she just doesn't have a means of transportation and you know what what do you what else do you you know know about her you know we we know she's young she knows we know she's going to be going to Camp Crystal Lake to become a counselor um and of course, you know, she's just got to find her ways to get there. And, and this is where we're kind of introduced to kind of the town of Crystal Lake and um, some of its locals. And we realize um, as she goes kind of into this kind of convenience diner place that, uh, you know, when she starts to inquire about Crystal Lake, the locals are not quite thrilled uh and you think that they kind of are trying to um dissuade her from from going especially when you know she mentions the camp and they go camp blood like an outsider's not going to know that why why would we be calling this camp blood and uh a funny little side tidbit here the guy who plays enos the truck driver uh he is the voice of bell's father in beauty and the beast um, a fact I came on, you know, to know later, but he's being generous enough to go ahead and, you know, be a good guy and give Annie at least a ride most of the way there. But then we're introduced to crazy Ralph and Ralph is become, he's one of the archetypes that have now become so prevalent in horror films, especially if you've seen Cabin in the Woods, you know, he's the harbinger of doom. 
and you know talking about camp blood and if she if she goes um you know it's it's got a death curse and and you know it people will die there if they go on and and uh you know you can see that annie's a little suspicious of what's going on but you know not enough to really kind of dissuade her from from going on to this job but you know this kind of sets up some of the back history for the camp and you get introduced kind of not by the character himself but by um but by enos here that you know steve christie the guy whose family has owned the camp for for years and he's trying to pour all this money into it and uh to try to get it back up and running and to make it profitable um but there's definitely some bad history as as annie's about to find out here and you know he he brings up a good point like if you're going in for a job and there's this kind of history that surrounds uh the place that you're working especially this very negative history that surrounds surrounds the place that you you're going to be working at you think your employer would be obligated or or would want to at least make you aware that uh you know there was this horrific accident uh you know and and i think it was he's going to mention it here in in a minute um you know again there's this theme of like jinxes and curses and you know the, the the breaking of the mirror there at the beginning seven years bad luck but yes you know, it was the kids were murdered in 58 but but then there was the drowning the year before the summer before um and then that there were all these different kind of um things that kept happening like there were fires someone someone poisoned the water and uh you know someone was actively trying to some someone or something was trying to actively prevent uh, the Christie's from ever op- opening the camp uh, up again, ever again. And so, you know, th- this all kind of plays into issues that, you know, would, would kind of maybe dissuade someone from wanting to go, go back to work, or not even go back to work, but just to go work in general at this camp. And, uh, but, you know, you kind of get this little fun, playful back and forth between Annie and Enos and Enos or Annie rather is not really quite, you know, scared, but, um, you know, she's, you know, getting out of the truck and she's very happy for, for the ride. And, you know, you can see that Enos is, you know, pretty nice guy and, you know, just was trying to be very helpful and, and, and warn Annie of, of this kind of curse that the town feels surrounds this camp um whether it's real whether it's imagined or not you know he just he liked her she reminded him of his nieces and everything and you know he was just trying to be a good guy and of course now here we get the the fun bunch of the crew you get ned marcy um and oh why why am i not remembering kevin bacon's character's name um regardless it's it's kevin bacon but uh you know you got ned who's kind of the joker horn dog type character and and marcy and and uh uh kevin bacon's character the you know fun loving couple 
so you know that they have all kind of a deep connection, but none of the other, they don't know all each other yet. The, the interplay uh, between the counselors is really key to this movie that I, I kind of like. And, you know, and that's all the, just even that sign, the camp, welcome to Camp Crystal Lake. Like, there's so many perfect elements that I felt really, feel really work with this movie. You know, it feels real. The camp feels real. Um, and of course, here you got Mr. Steve Christie out chopping wood. Uh, not particularly a, a mus- muscly man, but out there chopping without his shirt on and in the short shorts. Uh, very, very 80s. Um, well, not really chopping wood, but chopping the roots out. But of course, this is how uh, all of them come along here. And I will have Kevin Bacon's name in just a second. But, um, and of course, here's our main, our real main character, Alice, uh, you know, pretty much the, the girl next door type, uh, you know, very homely, uh, Jack. I knew it was Jack. Why, why couldn't I have remembered it was Jack? Um, but you know, Alice is very like the artsy girl and, you know, the very, you know, well-kept and uh pretty much straight-laced uh character and uh you know we're going to get introduced to the bill and brenda here as well and that will kind of kind of complete our circle of the of the main cast of characters um and you know this is one scene i always kind of found weird and interesting because you don't really quite know the age of these characters like I'm guessing that they're all college age, uh, based on, you know, this kind of conversation that Alice and Steve have, like Alice or Steve really has it, you know, bad for Alice and, you know, and Alice is obviously an artist as he picks up the sketchbook and he's kind of looking through all the different sketches and then he comes across this, um, picture of himself here, uh, and, you know, like, you can just, this kind of leer he gives here is just really creepy. Um, but then he comes across the picture of himself that you can only kind of see a little bit from the camera. Uh, but he's like, do I really look like this? And, and her little kind of flippant responses you did last night. Um, you know, whether or not that there were supposed to be any type of romantic inkling, um, you kind of get get the impression that he's got it bad for her, but she's not really into him and so if they were high school kind of age characters that would be kind of really creepy it'd be kind of crossing a line so i'd have to say that all all these counselors or future counselors are going to be are probably college students um but yeah you know the kind of whole arm up on the the gutter rail and trying to assert his manliness is, is kind of funny because he doesn't really come off as a, a manly man like no, no offense or anything like that i'm i mean he's very much like a guy like me just kind of thin but not necessarily muscular and just kind of average looking you know um but they kind of work this out she hasn't really felt like things are working here and then of course yeah you get the creepy hand to the hair type motif and i think that's where alice like yeah that's not cool but (coughs) pardon me um you know it's she's given given this a shot she doesn't feel like this is kind of the right place for her but you know she's willing willing to give it a shot um 
And it, now here we go. We got that POV again. And uh, we're introduced to, to Bill painting down at the docks. And Bill's a character I really like. And, um, oh, he's the son of, of a writer. And since I can't remember or pull up um, IMDb right now, I can't remember who, who he is. Or maybe not a writer, but another actor. Actually, that's, that's right. I think he's Bing Crosby's son. Um, don't at me if I'm wrong on that. But uh, that was something I, I learned about, um, I think, from that documentary. And it's really, really interesting. Uh, really cool. And he's, he's great in this. I mean, he does such a good job as Bill. But here, you know, of course, they're going to be left on their own. So, uh, you know... College students are going to do what college students do best. They're they're going to you know of course do their do their job, but they're going to have fun if they can manage to fit it in their schedules. And the, Brenda in the you know the red shorts, um, and she's another character I really like too. You know she's kind of a no nonsense but also a very knowledgeable person, and, and the scene uh, is perfect. Like it's it's a really good scene because it it's you get a sense of this eeriness, like, you know, she's carrying the, the archery, um, target and setting it up. And, uh, you know, as she's kind of looking back, you get the arrow shot across and, you know, thankfully you realize it's Ned and, and a cool little tidbit there that the person that actually shot the arrow was Tom Savini. Um, if you're not familiar with who Tom Savini is, you know, he's very popular in the effects makeup. You know, he is responsible for the look of Jason. Um, he's done the Prowler. He's done, um, I'm sure you're familiar with him from, from Dust Till Dawn. Um, his work is very prolific. Like, he worked on um, The Burning. He worked on Friday the 13th Part 4. Um, He's very he's very well known in the industry, and his work is is fantastic. I mean, even to this day, a lot of his work stands the test of time. Um, and here we get back to Annie and seeing her as she progresses on her way, and she's you know doing the hitchhiking thing. And you know, I don't understand why people hitchhike, like, or why even people in cars pick up hitchhikers. Like, it's it's not only danger for the person that's hitchhiking, but the person that picks up the hitchhiker is also like you don't know who this person is and i've seen like i i was on my way home from work one day and i saw this guy pull off the side of the road it was behind me and picked up the guy that was you know thumbing for a ride and he was not a great looking person like you know it's not like someone who looks like annie who looks like you know probably a wholesome girl who's got no nefarious means but uh you never know who you're getting from from picking someone off up the side of the road and vice versa. Um, but then, you know, of course, as Annie's about to find out, she's in that situation herself. Uh, they've obviously passed the, the road to the camp and she's getting a little, a little uneasy here. And I think this is one of the, the most impressive things. or One of the best things about this is to, to have these scenes, and you have no idea the gender, the race, uh, of who this person driving the car is. You know, you have no idea. You can't even see from the angle of where it's taking the shot of the Jeep from from the front, and you just, you don't see it at all. And and Annie's brave enough, but I think, and ultimately, she picked the wrong time to jump out. 
because you know she hits that rock and so now she's got a she's got a limp but she's trying to make a run for it and this is kind of again um this is great camera work the this pov uh kind of perspective you're seeing through the eyes of the killer you see no real kind of identifying features um and, and the and the switch you know you get those great camera switches from you got the killer's perspective and as much as you get you get in the feet and then you get the kind of the out of the the regular like this front camera facing moment um so you're kind of transitioning back and forth kind of seeing An- annie's peril from your perspective and then annie's peril from the killer's perspective um so you know it, it's a really fascinating thing oh she's reached safety you know she can kind of take a moment get her bearings um try to figure out what's what to do next until right there and and it's effective i mean what can she do she can't run and all she can do is be back up against this tree and bam and and again this is where kind of the psycho element plays into it because much as uh you think um certainly marion crane or, or i might have that wrong um but anyways the the, uh, the character played by um jamie lee curtis's mother who we you believe at the beginning of psycho is the main character and you go quite a bit of the movie and bam she's out she's out for the rest of the movie and so what what is uh what is the killer going to do now it's going to go kind of spy on on the counselors and uh you know these are a good group of kids um as much as like the franchise kind of deviates and they have more of the kind of crazy kids now that that is one really cool factor as you see the kill the killer's hand you see this ring on her finger or on their finger and um that that's the one identifying characteristic that you can notice later on and you know these are smart kids because as you can see like brenda brenda noticed something brenda noticed something out there in in the woods and um and sadly the actress that played brenda is no longer with us i I believe she passed away from cancer but when watching that documentary the cast uh adrian king and 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 them all talked about her and they had nothing but nice words to say about her and she and that's the type of character she plays in this um and you know here's them actually like i said although the later installments kind of devolve and the character aspects of you know they kind of become more raunchy characters they kind of become more stupid characters these are actually well-rounded characters that even though they're kind of silly and, and goof around um they're not they're not idiots like they're not necessarily um people who don't take things seriously or know how to act in the situation as you see as they as ned is kind of drowning they all immediately like they don't mess around uh alice goes gets the gets the the lifesaver and you know jack and marcy jump in the water bill and brenda get in the canoe to kind of try to find them and then they get them pulled out and immediately they get ready to start doing the cpr and um actually brenda brenda jumped in the water marcy was in in the canoe 
And although, you know, Ned, Ned pulls, Ned pulls a, a Sandlot move here, um, this is probably the catalyst for the killer. Uh, you know, this, this particular moment. I, I have to think that had Ned not pulled this trick, they might have just had some weird going-ons around the, the camp. Now, with, um, with Annie's death, that's, that's probably not true, but um, I, I like to think that. I like to think that had Ned not pulled this trick, the, these, these kids might have come out of this okay. Um, this is also a fun but weird, weird scene. Uh, I think that this is also trying to kind of plant a little bit of a, of a red herring here with Bill. You know, with this whole scene with the snake and, um, you know, they're trying to figure out what they need to do with it. And, uh, you know, he's, he's holding the machete like a bat, which I'm fairly certain that's not how you hold a machete. But, um, of course, to complicate situ- things more, he got everybody else kind of jumping in because they heard Alice scream. Um, now, as for kind of the whole fleshing it out scene that, that's coming up here, um, I, don't, I don't get how... Uh, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. Um, how jumping on the bed really does anything for it but uh jack pretty much just destroys the bed by doing by doing this but uh you know here's here's where i'm talking about with this kind of red herring a little bit um you know bill kind of just straight up kills kills the snake but it's not so much that um as this uh frame that's that's coming up here how he holds the machete and how he kind of looks down at the snake. Like there, there's something malevolent about that. And I think that was a great kind of framing reference, um, that, you know, they, they used for this. And I don't think that they could have, could have planted a red herring any better than that. And, and here you go, Ned being, Ned being a, a, an idiot as a, a police officer rolls up. And I love this. Oh shit. <laughs> you know, he's he's having fun and turns. Uh, you know, he's dressed in, in nothing but a you know a hat and uh, has his jersey wrapped around uh, his waist. And oh crap, here's a cop. Now, as for the whole like, oh yeah, what 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 drugs are you on, kids? Like, th- there's other than you know, of course, Ned's appearance. Nothing about Jack like really screams like drugs right now. And why he just is like, oh, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, what drugs are you on and all that stuff. Like, I don't understand it. But, you know, he's a cop. They they have their reasons. But, of course, he's on his search and rescue. Well, not really rescue mission, but search mission for, you know, Crazy Ralph. And of course, you know, none of these, none of these guys are familiar with Ralph. The only person that met Ralph down in, down in the town was Annie. So, uh, you know, Dwarf here just has, thinks that they, these kids would know, but of course they have no idea, but you know, they're managed to, it says, give them a warning, you know, just like, Hey, 
keep an eye out for him. We need to get him back down in town. His wife's looking for him and, and all that jazz. But, uh, you know, he, even though he, he only has this small little scene, he's a little fun character too. Uh, he, I think he tries to give this air of he's more important and cool and, and badass than he really is. And uh, I think none of the kids really buy it. And so, you know, he tries to prove it again by, by getting on his bike and doing his quick little, you know, U-turn here, sliding around. And, of course, he doesn't do it that, that well either. Um, but I think it's just like he's kind of a bumbling cop a little bit. And, and, but yet trying to show he's a badass on a motorcycle. So, um, you know. He's fun. It's the only scene he's in, but he, he he certainly makes an impression every you know every time I watch watch this movie. Um, of course, how crazy Ralph got into the pantry, no one knows. Uh, but you know, like I said, he's the harbinger harbinger of doom. He's the the guy who tries to warn all the kids. Uh, I don't really know. I've seen so many horror movies. I I, I can't say that this is the first one to kind of. No, that's that's definitely wrong because Donald Pleasance uh, in Halloween is definitely, uh, as Dr. Loomis, is the harbinger of doom. Now, he plays more of an active role, so he, he kind of breaks out of the mold or he maybe created the mold, but he certainly is not uh, the typical harbinger of doom as he plays an active role in that movie and in that franchise, whereas you know, a character like Ralph is only there just to, to warn the kids. He doesn't really play an active role in trying to help or protect them other than to say, you're all doomed, doomed. Um, and, and again, like this, I don't know if it's a kind of a, a miss or, or a mistake, but like this was right where the, the cop was and Ralph's bike sitting out there uh how did no one notice this random bike sitting there you know um but it's fun it's still fun it's a small little thing it's nothing to really pick apart uh no too seriously although i don't know why the shot lingers on him for a while on the bike um and of course you know this these scenes here like just having the characters all together like you, you feel like these are real people you feel like these are people that you can meet in real life and that have uh real relationships and and what makes kind of this movie devastating is like none of these characters feel like bad people uh they're 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 just college kids they're just you know doing a summer job and and having fun but their interplay and their chemistry together is what helps this kind of feel you know i don't know like warm and, and departed that these just feel like real people three-dimensional people you feel like they have lives you feel like they have families and people that care about them and uh i i think that that's what helps make this film so so iconic to me and why it's one of my favorites is you know when you get to the later installments they're 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 cardboard characters you know you don't get this interplay as as much in between them you don't understand their relationships you don't see them interact as well together and uh you know and so when you can't feel for the characters when you can't identify with the characters when 
the eventual deaths happen, you you don't feel any connection. You don't feel any uh, sympathy for them. Like you don't feel any upset for their loss. Like you know, Jack and Marcy here having having fun, just being a fun couple and and having a stroll together. Like you know, you you, you want that relationship, or you're in that type of relationship, or you're uh, like Ned here. You know, kind of wanting that type of relationship but not knowing ever how to get it so you play the jokester and you're you just that's how you try to win people over and so you're kind of more of the third wheel uh i'm gonna just you know be the funny guy so that can get me some attention and uh you know just kind of go off on your lonesome and be alone with your thoughts so uh you know this is how he gets isolated and he sees this random person here in this in this kind of more abandoned cabin um just you know not doing anything wrong you know he can i help you you know is there someone here like i'm i'm are you all right uh you know and and then we're just kind of left with not knowing what happens here um so now this is this coming up here is, is where I'm talking about where there's actually a hint of the supernatural. And uh, I'll, I'll explain more when when Marcy gets to that that bit. But the, and, you know, Mar- Marcy's the mother type character like, you know, she she even though she's here with her boyfriend and having a good time, she knows like Ned wants to have that type of relationship that she has with Jack. And, um, and so she, she's worried about him. Like that, that's, that's part of what, what really makes these characters three dimensional. But here she goes on about, she's had this dream five or six times about a thunderstorm and it's raining. And, um, that there's this thing about it that she can't, block out this the sound of the rain and it just gets loud and loud and um then all of a sudden she notices that there it's blood and then there's this particular thing that I'm going I'm going to definitely call attention to later on um where she calls it here um she calls it her shower dream uh, now that's, that's very important. You gotta, gotta hold on to that, um, that line because it comes into play here a little bit later in the film. And you, you gotta love this scenery too. The, the location that they shot this in, um, now was an actual summer camp. And I think they, they shot this where it was actually clo- during the closed season. Uh, so it was a little bit, co- I think it was a little bit colder out. I might have that a little bit wrong, but, uh, but they picked a beautiful location. I mean, uh, you know, you couldn't have asked for a more beautiful scenery and, and especially a beautiful place that something horrific is going to happen. That's part of the horror. It's those places where you're like, you don't expect something ever bad to ever happen. And of course, you know, as with most horror films where we've got the obligatory, um, love making scene and uh you know there's not much i'm going to comment about on all this but 
the, I think with this is probably one of the few in the franchise where it's it's not just it's not there for the sake of being there. You know, you really feel that these characters are are in love that you know that they're going to go on and get married that this is a real complete relationship these are again three-dimensional characters people we know in our real lives and uh you know you can't really fault them for sneaking off and having a moment together a moment of 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 love and enjoyment and um it's and of course it also leads to a, a really great scene that um that tom savini kind of managed to come up with the idea for himself uh on how they were going to execute the scene but now we've you know we're splitting up the party a little bit we're 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 now with alice and bill and brenda and of course now it's just storming like none other and uh you know they're just kind of chilling and and having some fun relaxing and, and getting to know each other i mean now at this point, Bill, Brenda, and Alice have known each other longer than the rest of the group, as they were here before Jack, Ned, and Marcy showed up. They've probably been there for a couple of days now, if not longer, and uh, so you know they're more. Which would make sense why they would be split up the way that they're split up right now. Like, it's it's the kids that know each other the longest are going to kind of stick with the, with each other. And the ones who are kind of newer are going to stick with the people that they know until they fully integrate with each other. And, of course, I think this was probably the first time I ever learned of, of the game of uh, Strip Monopoly. And, of course, Bill being a little bit overconfident thinks, you know, he'll, uh, he'll be able to, to win this. He he's got the the ability. Of course, he's got two young, uh, beautiful women that you know. Maybe he'll he'll get a chance to um, get them down as far as they can go on, on, on the clothing. And you know, I always try to think of this as as uh, Kevin Bacon's first movie, but really, Animal House was his first movie. But one thing I have to really appreciate is I don't think when you have some actors who in their early careers are in horror films just to have an acting role and to have an acting job. Later in life, uh, when they've, if they've made it out into the big times and everything, they kind of eschew that, that movie or that, that choice. Um, Kevin Bacon's never really disowned this movie. And here's also the big reveal to kind of sidetrack me on my point there. It's been now revealed that Ned is dead. And, and not only that, Ned is above them in the bunk bed while Jack and Marcy are making love. And um, and that's horrifying. Like, you just think about that. Like, here's one of your best and closest friends and someone that you genuinely care about. And they're dead, but you have no idea. And they're in the same room as you, let alone right above you. Um, so... It's just a really kind of horrifying thought uh, to and, and a horrifying experience. Like if they were to ever, you know, actually discover that, I don't know what type of impact that would have on a person. Um, so but again, going back to kind of what I was saying, like Kevin Bacon's never disowned this movie. 
Um, you know, in fact, I think he's kind of embraced it. I mean, he's even gone on to do some other horror projects on later in life. Uh, you know, Stir of Echoes, even though the the following uh, is more of a thriller show, that I still it has elements of horror. Um, you know, I think he was in The Darkness, which I, I haven't seen that one. I have not heard great things about it. But, uh, you know, he's he's kind of kept kept his mind about it like he's thankful this kind of not i mean between animal house and this kind of launched his career um i always love this scene too where alice decides to buy baltic avenue bill's like nobody lands on baltic avenue and of course rolls those lucky dice and lands on baltic avenue and alice just eats it up again the just the the actors do such a great job of just portraying these characters and, and, and fleshing them out and, and coming up and, you know, having these interactions with each other on the screen that really lead, you know, lean to giving this like credibility, the feeling that this could have happened in the real world. And, you know, Bill realizing, Oh yeah, I'm going to need more beer for this. This is not going the way I thought it was going to go. And, this uh, this scene here is is really fantastic. This is what I was talking about with Tom Savini kind of orchestrating the idea of how to uh, execute the scene and execute it perfectly. I I think it, it's short and show phrase a little bit um, nowadays, but it still looks great. But he gets grabbed by the head and and the knife goes through his throat. And now you can kind of start seeing the, the difference between the fake neck and, and, and what's real. But, you know, it basically had his head up through the pillow and then, um, you know, his body under the bed. And then what's basically his body for that scene is just like a mannequin as they shove the, the arrow up under the bed. But, you know, had he had a couple of seconds longer, you know, he would have probably realized that Ned's body was up there. And it also means that the killer had been hiding in that cabin the entire time. And this is, again, okay, we're back to Marcy here uh, as she's, you know, going to the bathroom. Uh, just remember that, that her shower dream and the rain pouring and the rain pouring down in blood and this kind of the, the supernatural element really kind of coming into play here. Um, as, you know, we get the door opens and... and the footsteps uh, or the feet of the killer kind of coming into the bathroom um, and doing it very quietly. So Marcy's not even aware that, that this person has walked into the room. Um, you know, it, it's, it's just very crafty. Like they, they, they set up these elements so well. And, uh, you know, they, they, this is really before you have the establishment of the horror rules uh, um, that uh, Jamie Kennedy's character in Scream kind of, you know, says to them at the party. This is one of the films that kind of sets those guidelines into place. But even then, again, these are characters that are not exactly complete idiots. Nothing that they quite do. Um, Scream oh, you're an idiot, make this choice, do this choice, like as you get in later on horror films. Um, now, this was a scene, as I was playing it earlier, and this is, of course, coming up on the scene that uh, <laughs> played while I was uh, 
working and I was switching out my headphones, but I didn't quite remember. Like I remember her doing the speech, but never quite realized that like she goes to turn on the water to wash her hands, but the, the faucet's not working. And of course then she thinks she hears a noise and I, I, I don't know. I, I somehow had blocked this out a little bit that she couldn't get the water to come out. And then as she reaches under the sink to turn on the, the water. It's innocuous. I mean, it doesn't really play uh, an important part for, for the movie, but I just didn't ever quite realize that she had to actually do that. Um, but I love this kind of slow close-up. You're, you're kind of getting this apprehension. You know something's not right. So she's thinking, of course, it's either Jack or it's Ned. Someone's trying to just play, you know, a, a joke with her. And again, you've got Harry Manfredini's just kind of discordant score to kind of, you know, heighten that sense of uneasiness. Um, that, you know, something's bad is going to happen. And, you know, you might say that, okay, well, this is stupid. Why go investigate that noise? But you got to remember... They have no idea. They have no reason to think that anything is wrong. That anything's out, you know, out of the blue is happening. That that needs to put them um, on alert. But again, remember her shower dream. Well, what's she doing right now? She's checking out the showers. And um, and then of course you get the shadow of the axe as it lifts. And of course, this was the part that plays the scream and the and the music playing, but she has that dream four or five times, and it's raining, and the rain turns into blood, and she calls it her shower dream. And I don't know if this was Victor Miller's writing, or they just decided, oh yeah, we're gonna go with go with it this way, uh, or just so happened to work out that way. It, it it just feels like it's kind of a it was fate. It was something she saw her own fate in her dreams that, you know, she was destined to kind of complete that, um, that destiny, you know, that, that this was, it was her fate that this was, this was how it was going to end for her. And she just played into it, uh, perfectly. So now we have, of course, three dead bodies, Jack's gone, Marcy's gone, Ned's gone. So now we're just left with Brenda Alice and Bill and they're kind of pretty much all kind of calling it a night a little bit Brenda's going to go off to her her cabin and and do some reading and Bill and Alice are going to hang out and you know I'm not really into the shipping stuff that you know people now do a days if you're not familiar with shipping it's relationshiping it's pairing up two characters from a piece of fiction that you think should be together based off their interactions but I will say, like, I've always felt like Bill and Alice were, would have been a great couple together. Like, they, they just, their interplay, like, it's a much better match than her and Steve. Now, we're kind of moved away from the camp because we do still have the character of Steve. This is a little headcanon for me. And I, I, it's, it's not true, but I like to think of this, um, this uh, diner worker, Sandy, I believe is her name. Uh, the redhead with the glasses. I always like to think of her as uh, the same character as Joe from Jason Goes to Hell, the um, the diner owner there, um, mainly because she's redheaded as well. And, uh, you know, I just like, I like to think of it as like a kind of a point of continuity of connection to the original movie, but it, there, there really is no, uh, the, there is no connection there. It's just like, 
two redheads. They work in a diner. Uh, but I, I don't know. It's, it's my head cannon. I like to think that that's the same character, but oh well, no, can only do, you can only, uh, do what, what, what you do for you. So certainly an interesting, weird looking character a little bit, but you know, never comes into play later on. Uh, but this is another thing. Like I, I also kind of, uh, like to, think if the scene goes as the way it goes um no that's gonna be i think that's a little bit later here we'll, we'll obviously see um of course we're gonna be coming up here on on the the break point between the two episodes um i think we're reaching a good halfway mark um you know we've had some kills and we still don't know quite who the killer is yet uh, we got Steve getting ready to head back onto the to the camp. Uh, Bill and Alice are in the main uh, lodge, and um, Brenda has gone off to her um, to her cabin. All right, so we're gonna go ahead and stop it here in three, two, one, and I'm just gonna co- go ahead and give you some last minute thoughts here before we uh, move on to part two, but. I hope you're enjoying this. Um, you know, I'm sorry if it seems a little bit disorganized. It's first time I've done one of these things and I'm doing it alone. I like to do this with a co-host where I could actually more kind of feed off them and, and, you know, get some more feedback on, on their thoughts and opinions. But, uh, you know, I've kind of enjoyed doing it. It's been a little bit different. Um, so we're going to go ahead and end this part, part one, uh, right now. And we'll do a, uh, uh, the second part right after and we'll count it back in you know to start up so currently i am i am paused at the uh 50 minute and 15 second mark of the film uh brenda is actually getting ready to wash up in her uh green rain jacket green slicker and i will see you guys shortly <laughs> 